Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles, California. How are you? What's happening out there? I hope you're doing okay. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People Show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Today, my guest is B. Setton, author of the debut novel, Berlin. I mean, it happened when I, I realized that I wanted, I was kind of skiving off my job or pretending to do my job and I was writing and I was, and I felt there was momentum beyond myself. It was like nearly, I don't know, it was like a stone falling, rolling down a hill or something. Suddenly I got caught up in it and I was like, oh, there's something's happening here. I mean, I think from the beginning, I, because of the kind of stuff that I watch and read, I, I instinctively created suspense, but I was rolling down a hill and I had no idea like in what direction that suspense was going. And so that was like the problem that I had to work on later. But if you create suspense, it kind of keeps your writing going because you've created a debt with the reader in a certain sense and you have to pay it back. And I was kind of interested to see where the story would go as well. So I had not plotted it at all, but I remember a very specific moment when I was meant to be working and I and I was like secretly writing. And I was like, okay, this is a story that I, that I want to engage with seriously. All right. That was B. Setton. Her debut novel, Berlin, is available now in the United States from Penguin Books. And it is a very auspicious debut that is narrated by a young female protagonist named Daphne Ferber. Daphne has fled her life in London. She's in her 20s. She bails on all of her friends, her job in London, and she moves to Berlin hoping to reinvent herself. But, of course, what she finds is that new difficulties inevitably present themselves in her new hometown, in Germany. And she has to contend with them. And eventually, she has to contend with the parts of herself that she would rather not look at. This is a very psychologically astute and very sharply observed novel. It's got a great dark sense of humor. Daphne Ferber is a very memorable character for a variety of reasons, for her cutting wit, for her erudition, her contradictions, for the ways in which 
she both knows and does not know who she is. And B. Seton captures Daphne's voice so well. She really makes her come alive. I tore through Berlin, and I loved meeting and talking with B. Seton. B. Seton has lived all over the place. She's a citizen of the world, born in France, raised in Paris, went to university in the United States at Yale, lived in Colombia, in South America for a time. I believe she has a master's degree from Cambridge. And then she wrote this debut novel, as you might expect, while living in Berlin. When I spoke with her, she had just returned very much in character from a whirlwind book tour in the United States, and now she was back in Europe, somewhere in Italy. So I am pleased to have caught up with B. Seton at this moment in her career as she makes this fine debut. Once again, the novel is called Berlin, and this is my conversation with B. Seton. I mean, actually, to begin with, I didn't plan on writing a novel. I, I was writing things to amuse my friends, and then I would copy them onto like iMessenger or WhatsApp or whatever it was, and send them send the things that I'd written round to people just to like amuse them. So the initial plan was actually not to write a novel, but when I got enough of those small segments together and all my friends who are obviously my biggest fans who are not at all impartial were saying this is so funny keep going that's when something a little you know bigger occurred to me and and the writing sort of took on its own momentum and then it went in a novel direction I thought at first that it might be you know a short story or something like that but I think the reason why it was so fun was because there was so little ambition which meant that anything that went positively was pure bonus and pure joy and anything that didn't happen well I never thought anything would happen so it seemed natural but like I would definitely describe it as like a really joyful experience of writing I was like laughing to myself at my own jokes in the library all the time <laughs> like it was just and sending it to my friends and they would obviously also laugh because they're my friends so they're kind of obligated but it was just a joy you know and I think I had been for the few years before I started writing it, I'd been working really, really hard in service jobs that are like extremely demanding. And before that, I'd done a philosophy degree, which was very rigorous and not, I wouldn't say it was funny for all the qualities that you, you have in philosophy. It's not a funny discipline. Philosophers are not funny. So I think I felt incredible liberation from my work and my academic background in writing the novel. And that's why it felt joyful. You know, and I never had expectations of myself as a writer. I never thought of myself as one. And so anything positive that happened was a bonus. And I never felt like I have to do anything or this has to be a novel. And so the pressure was low. And that that's what made it so enjoyable. So I'm curious to know how much you wrote via text, like sending text messages to your friends and getting their feedback or really their they were cheerleaders for you. They were not giving you like critique or anything. They were basically just telling you that no matter what you said, it was awesome, which I think actually is an important point because there are certain writers and there are certain times in the writing process when that's what a person maybe needs. And a more uh, detailed critique is something that you might need later on in the, in the writing. Do you know what I'm saying? I totally agree with that. 
Yeah. So how much did you, like you, how much were you texting? Were these like 5,000 word texts or were they short little bits? And how much of what ultimately ended up in Berlin did you text to people? <laughs> Interestingly, I would say a lot of what I texted ended up in the novel, which is quite, I mean, strange looking back at it. I, I think I would send, you know, I know like Americans don't really use WhatsApp. That's really a European thing, but I would send like significant chunks, you know, the kind of thing, like usually what people associate with angry texts, you know, angry, intense texts. That was probably like the length of stuff that I was sending to people. And mostly I would only send them the stuff that I was most proud of. So I would say the majority of the text stuff ended up in the novel. And a friend of mine actually recently sent me a screenshot of the opening of the novel that I sent her via text and it's kind of didn't change much. So obviously I was only sending the best stuff. So there's a good reason it ended up there, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it ended up in, in this version of Berlin that, you know, I have today. How many friends were you sending this to? Like as many as would give me <laughs> the attention that I wanted. <laughs> so like I would send it out copy and pasted to like seven people. And then if someone didn't give me, you know, positive emojis after a certain time, I would be like not included in the group text anymore. You know, it was like <laughs> that kind of vibe. But I totally, you know, as, as you said, I, I really wanted positive feedback. And I, I, obviously I wasn't intending to write a novel, so that wasn't a conscious process. But I think a lot of my friends who write are much too harsh on themselves early on in the process. And of course, there is a time for real, real critical feedback where you want to make it as good as possible. But at the beginning, you really are just starting out and you should be nourishing your writing and not kind of coming down too hard on it. That's definitely my belief. Well, but, you know, the only downside would be if if the work really sucks or if you're going down a path that's really inadvisable narratively speaking and your friends are sort of giving you the smiley face emoji <laughs> you do need friends to tell you if like this is misbegotten and it sounds like do you know what i'm saying so you were sending it to people who you knew would cheer you on as long as you were generally headed in the right direction but did you have faith that they would tell you to stop if you were doing something that was not good um, I, not really. I think they would have encouraged me <laughs> to be honest. They would have encouraged me no matter what I was doing, but from my experience of like writing the second novel that I've just finished now, which was not nearly as fun. I have learned that you need to go down those like dodgy, useless, dead end alleys in order to get to the good writing. I do like, I think one has to have discipline about calling it quits when it's time to stop something, but one has to venture into unpromising territory in order to figure out that it's not promising. So I feel like even just write, encouraging writing in itself as an act is always positive. But obviously yeah. if you're like laboring a super complex, whatever novel, super long novel for years and years and no one's enjoying it, then you have to learn also to let go, I think. But I, I, you know, the setting of the second novel, I set it in a totally different place. The character was different and I had to go down that way in order to get to the good stuff. So I think encouragement is always good especially at the beginning. And then after a while, you have to like call it quits. Okay. So let's unpack this. First of all, how much serious critique did you get in the editorial process once maybe you had a book deal or further along in the process? How much of Berlin sort of uh, emerged whole and how much of it was refined in 
in subsequent drafts? I would say maybe about 60% emerged whole and then 40%, especially towards the second half, really needed critical feedback. And my editor really was like inc- incredibly helpful. And not only, I think a lot of people think of editors as people who come and kind of correct your sentences, but my, ed- you know, that kind of thing. But my editor helped me incorporate structural things and plot and gave me plot advice that really changed the novel for the better. So the first half of this experience was just me being encouraged. And the second half was extremely interventionist. You but know, you had it, but you read, had a book deal. You had a book deal. I got a book deal. I think because the f- opening chapter was as it exists now, and it was quite, com- you know, it was compelling. And com- I, I was always confident about the voice and the atmosphere. The problem was the plot but I had a meeting with my editor before she took me on, before I got a book deal. She wanted to meet with me, basically to make sure that I was going to be a person who was open and amenable to editing. And I basically, not in these act- actual words, but I conveyed the sense that I have no artistic integrity and that I would do anything she wanted me to. <laughs> and I, and so she took me on because I was like, and all the ideas you have sound great, I'll do it, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's like, a, it's like writers are sort of starving most of the time anyway, to be edited by somebody who genuinely cares about the work and understands, you know, in a broad sense, what you're going for. You know, if they have a completely divergent idea about the book, then it's going to be a problem. But if, as long as they're on board with your intentions and they want to make the thing great, it's like, thank you, please help me. (laughs) Right. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, there are a few, I have also, you know, met a few writers who are very like, you know, who, who resist editing, but then they're usually sometimes not always, but they're writing for like a slightly different reason. They're writing and it's important for them to get their story on the page in a way that makes sense to them primarily. But once you want to go into dialogue with a reader, you have to kind of open it up to an editor. And like, I think you're right. Editor, like as a writer, someone giving me general critical feedback that's motivated by a desire for the story to be excellent as opposed to that's motivated by like the desire to just shoot it down. Like that kind of feedback I crave and I always want more of. And I think writers always want more of that kind of feedback. So what about the book deal? Like you write at least a draft of this thing, right? It wasn't just, you didn't sell it just on a chapter. No, I wrote a full draft. Yeah. Okay. And then you had an agent? Yeah. I got an agent. Yeah. Okay. And how did that happen? I I don't know if what I did was advisable, but I sent it out indiscriminately to as many people as possible without even, to be honest, without even really looking at their like author lists. I ba- And I sent out, probably in total, I sent out 60 to 60 agents, some of whom I just got automatic replies saying, I'm actually not taking submissions. Some of whom said no, some of whom never replied. But I had this kind of game that every time I got a rejection, I would send it out again. Um, but quite indiscriminate, you know, and I didn't take, I didn't labor over an excellent letter. I just sort of machine gun fired in all directions. And, <laughs> that's, and then it, it worked eventually. Yeah, I got like two positive replies out of 60. And that's all you need is, you know, one, basically. That's right. That's right. The only thing I would say is like, did you, I think that's, I kind of did the same thing, but I, with one rule, which was that I would not query more than one agent at the same place. Right? I'm not even sure I did that. I really was <laughs> clueless, to be honest. Like, I think, but I was a bit, 
I was a bit, I had a bit of a sort of adversarial relationship with the process because I was like, these guys, they're not even going to answer me. You know, they get a million of these a day. I'm not going to be more considerate of them than they are of me. And I'm not sure that is the right attitude. I can't kind of recommend that to people. But right. I do say like, when, you know, because I work with like, well, I, I, I volunteer with an organization. I work with writers who are submitting their work. And I say to them, you know, craft a good kind of letter to send to the agent, but respect your time too, because they're not, you know, you, you can't be spending a month on a letter for an agent who might reject it in a second. You also have to be like realistic about how much time they're investing in you as a potential writer. And I think writers are always scrambling to find more time. And so it's also important to obviously earnestly engage with the process, but also protect your time. Okay. So continuing to unpack like a lot, you know, what you were saying a moment ago, you said that you were getting a lot of emoji responses from friends in the early stages of writing Berlin. I'm curious to know if there were certain types of emojis that you saw consistently, if there were emojis that you liked better than others, <laughs> like what were, what are, what's a good emoji to send to somebody who's texting you chapters from their novel? I liked the crying, laughing emoji. <laughs> that okay. was, that's like, obvious, that was the one I sought. I got the kind of disturbed emoji a lot, especially the, like, I don't know. Wait, what is that one? It's like the one that has like a kind of, um, like the eyebrow is like a weird shape and it's okay. like doing like a very <laughs> disturbed face emoji. I got that a lot, especially from like the men in my life. I'm not sure why <laughs> why that's the case. The women tended to, like my, my female friends tended to find it funny immediately and the guys were like, whoa, this is heavy. How do I engage? Um, so they sent me more amb ambivalent emojis. I would say... As, an, as far as emojis go, you want, you want, like, you don't want blank face emoji, the one that's like just eyes and no mouth. That's bad. You want reactions, positive, negative. You just want a strong reaction either way and to know that your work is having an effect on someone. It doesn't always have to be that they're like delighted or amused, but they have to be moved. Or That was always my aim. Yeah, you want emotion. Exactly. Okay. So you also mentioned in writing your second novel, which we're going to talk about in great, you know, in greater detail later, but you mentioned something about knowing when you're going down the wrong path and having the sense to sort of stop and pivot. How do you know? I mean, is it just intuitive you get, to, or you get to a place where you just give up because it's just painful to keep trying? Like what is the moment at which that happens for you? Is there a consistency to it from, from moment to moment? Or do you know what I'm saying? Because I think part of it for me anyway, is like, well, I don't want to give up and I don't want to let the negative thoughts and emotions that come along with trying to write creatively overwhelm me and prevent me from writing something that could otherwise be good if I just stuck it out. But sometimes we are going down the wrong trail. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, how do you navigate that stuff? Well, I think it's quite it's quite similar to like everything in life. I know that like in the US they have like an it's really bad to be like a quitter. I, I, I like culturally know that because someone once was like, you're a quitter. And I was like, is that a bad thing? <laughs> um, I think it's really it's about knowing when you're learning from a difficult experience and knowing when it's sort of just kind of denigrating you. That's a general life skill, but that also applies for writing. So it can be hard but it feels worth something. I think that will like emerge over time. But if it's hard and totally joyless and 
causing you upset, then that's when I think you have to like pull back from it. And that's not to say that one day you could go back. But I think, I do think that we can learn to discern difficulty from which we learn and difficulty, which is just punishment. Difficulty from which we learn does not mean that you will necessarily use that material, but it means that it's bringing you to somewhere that you need to be. I mean, that sounds, it's a bit irritatingly abstract, but it's hard because it is based on a feeling, you know, there aren't kind of definitive rules. But I think having self-respect as the basic rule and then saying, okay, is this, do I want to give up because it's hard and I ought not to, or do I want to give up because I've understood that it's not good for me to do this anymore? And, and I, you know, like I'm not, I'm not, de- I'm not even developing anything from it. That, that's the discernment to have in writing and in life, I guess. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So wait, you're British, but you have French parents. Is that right? Like just like Daphne in the book? My, my father's French and I grew up in France and my mother's from England. Oh, okay. So I'm half French, half English, yeah. Where'd you grow up in France? In Paris. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'm curious to know, culturally speaking, like you can be a quitter in France. In France, it's okay, right? Like, what's the? Like, I'm curious about these differences because that is kind of an American thing. Like, we don't quit. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we work until we faint. Right. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But in England, England and France, it's like okay to be like, you know what? I'm going to tap out. I've had enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think. The odd thing, the analogy I think about is like sports in the US because whatever, like you, you know, a kid does a sport in the US and they're like never allowed to quit their whole life and they have to train like crazy. Whereas in, in, in Europe, we're just like, are you enjoying it? Yes, go. You're not enjoying it? Leave. I think in general, there isn't a kind of moral weight on giving up on things in France or in the UK in the way there is in America. In America, I mean, even that set, even that, that word being a quitter it's such a kind of moral condemnation. Like it really was unfamiliar to me. So when I got to the U S and I was like playing whatever, like club soccer. And I was like, this is too much. I kind of don't want to do it. And they were like, are you going to quit? Are you a quitter? And I was like, <laughs> I just don't want to do it. Maybe, you know, what, what does that say about me morally? And, and I did learn from the U S you know, way of doing things where I'm like, we have to, not everything that's good for us is easy. And not everything that makes you grow feels good as you're doing it. And understanding that's important, but equally learning to cut your losses is really important too, without feeling shame about it. So wait, when were you in the United States? You lived here too? Yeah, I lived in the US. I did my my undergrad degree in the US. 
yeah so from Where? like 18 to 22 i went to yale so connecticut okay, okay. all right so uh i want to talk to you about the writing of berlin a little bit more you wrote it in berlin at the american memorial library in a summer a bit more Okay. Summer's nicely way to probably like in a month here and there. Yeah. So yeah, you're all over the place. How did you wind up in Berlin? I just moved back. So I was in the US and then I moved to Colombia, to Medellin, to work in the coffee industry, which I loved. Then I moved home and I started doing a philosophy degree, which didn't do which didn't go very well. I wasn't enjoying it and wasn't ready to go back into academic work. And I moved for Berlin for like no other reason than I was like the coolest people who I know are moving there. Yeah. I want to be cool. I'm going to move right. there. You <laughs> That's kind of how, how did that happen? I feel like that, that Berlin became that place. I guess the rents are relatively affordable and you can be an artist there and there's yes. lots of young people and I, you know, it's got all the, all the trappings, I guess, that people in their twenties are looking for. Yeah. I think in, at this stage, it's the affordable rent is, is enough. I mean, it's getting more expensive like everywhere else and people are getting priced out, but you can still afford to live there and have quite a nice life without like really tapping into like the economic grind of a place like London or Paris, or I suppose New York, where you're just, you have to be working crazy hours just to sort of sustain a basic life. And in Berlin, it isn't like that. You know, you can, well, you can work like 34 hours, 32 hours a week. And as long as you're careful, you also have loads of time to like do your art that's why there's loads of people doing art and everyone in Berlin is somehow like a movie maker. I'm like, how can you all be movie makers? There are not that many movies being made, wow. but that's the kind of atmosphere there. That's how Los Angeles kind of is, but it's not the same. Like, I feel like every place should be affordable like that. Like why can, why is life so hard in so many places? And it's always the places that you actually want to live, right? It's like San Francisco. You can't, you know, it's the most beautiful place on earth and you can't live there unless you're making like $500,000 a year or whatever it is, you know, you can't own yeah. a home, certainly. But you get to Berlin, you have the idea for this novel. I guess it's sort of materializing for you as you're texting. Like there was a point at which you started to realize, like I have a book here, you mentioned it earlier, where it started to kind of veer off in a novel direction. Did that happen when you were in Berlin? Yeah, that happened okay. when I was in Berlin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it happened when I, I realized... That I wanted, I was kind of skiving off my job or pretending to do my job, and I was writing, and I was, and I felt there was momentum beyond myself. It was like nearly, I don't know, it was like a stone falling, rolling down a hill or something. Suddenly, I got caught up in it, and I was like, oh, there's something's happening here. I mean, I think from the beginning, I because of the kind of stuff that I watch and read, I, I instinctively created suspense, but I was rolling down a hill and I had no idea like in what direction that suspense was going. And so that was like the problem that I had to work on later. But if you create suspense, it kind of keeps your writing going because you've created a debt with the reader in a certain sense and you have to pay it back. And I was kind of interested to see where the story would go as well. So I had not plotted it at all. But I remember a very specific moment when I was meant to be working and I and I was like secretly writing. And I was like, okay, this is a story that I that I want to engage with seriously. And Daphne. Yeah. Your protagonist. She's interesting. Yeah, she's interesting. Okay. She, it's it's she's interesting because um, I mean it's funny when I was doing readings recently and I I usually always read kind of the same stuff and I was like oh, I'm not going to read the same things and I reread this section. It's like the dating app section of the novel and I was like surprised by how 
even though I'm always engaged with it, I was like, she's so salty and harsh and and like funny I was kind of surprised by it like she has this weird thing where she's like very confident in her judgments but has like a lot of self-hatred and and that combination is what makes her funny yeah she's a cool I like I kind of liked I mean I'm obviously I like Daphne but if people I'm a bit of a comedian when it comes to that so if people hate her as a character I'm always like oh she's terrible and if they love her as a character I'm like I also love Daphne so I'm a bit I'm a bit you know mercurial on that so you know when i think about daphne and when i think about this book and the experience that i had when i was reading it the phrase that kept occurring to me was uh, sharply observed that you know as, as harsh as she may be or as contradictory as she may be i felt especially in the you know the first half of the book because it is so funny and it contains so many different aspects of human experience. And she's such a complicated person uh, in a way that I love because I think everyone's sort of like that. And maybe we don't see enough of this in the characters that we encounter in fiction. We certainly don't present that complexity to other people unless we really know them well. I think a lot of times people sort of have a face that they put on, you know, even it doesn't necessarily mean that they're duplicitous. I just think like, it's just the way that we function, (laughs) you know, we all sort of contain multitudes and we only show so much to other people, but this is a very sharply observed novel. And I was repeatedly impressed by Daphne's ability to sort of be cutting in her assessments of other people and her ability to sort of dissect cultural trends like dating apps and you know the environment that she's living in, her experiences in Berlin, the city itself, but to also be really cutting when it came to her assessment of herself. You know, as somebody who's got a mind like that and who can see a lot and understand a lot oftentimes I think is that way with themselves. It's, it's usually not a one-way street where it's all pointed outward. Mm-hmm. And I think too, the fact that she has, I believe, two therapist parents, like, I don't know if that's something that you share with Daphne, but <laughs> I thought that was a very, that was a nice little brushstroke for her character because she is so psychologically astute. Yeah. I think, I think what makes her kind of bearable as a character is you know exactly what you name is that for all her critique and judgment of others she has incredible self-awareness and any you know and and is and is very lucid about how her own mind works and her own hypocrisies and and all that kind of thing I mean and her parents being therapists I think I sort of put that in you know to to also to hint at something which I think Daphne's a what Daphne illustrates is that one can have kind of exquisite intellectual awareness of one's difficulties and 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 be very kind of psycho psychoanalytically you know fluent but that does not mean that one's behavior changes and i think that that's something that generationally i notice a lot where people are very able to like present you know nearly their you know present their pathologies or present what their traumas are or present what their pains are but whether or not we're closer to solving those things and to actually changing and functioning better, I'm not totally convinced. So like part of the comedy of Daphne is someone who is super lucid about 
all her problems, but who can't act on that knowledge. And I think that's the actual difficult thing about being a human is like understanding is one step in terms of, you know, understanding oneself as a human, what our faults are, but actually changing is much harder. And Daphne is a perfect illustration of the cognitive dissonance of knowing what you ought to do, but being unable to do it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that even somebody who is as like psychologically fluent or psychotherapeutically fluent, somebody as self-aware as Daphne, still there can be blind spots. Still there can be lies that we tell ourselves in ways that are kind of shocking. Like I've been, I think everybody goes through this if they live long enough. It is amazing the way that human beings, even human beings who think they're being really honest with themselves can lie to themselves. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, And the reality is, I mean, we are in some ways the least well positioned to understand and comment on ourselves because we're looking, we're we're the window from which we're looking out. Right. And you can never get that objective perspective onto yourself. And however much you might try, there's always something lacking. There is always a blind spot and something that you can't see. And I think if you're lucky in life, as you've said, we have a few moments where we are confronted with with the truth of who we are or the truth of a lie that we've been telling ourselves. And those lies are like the most enchanting, the lies we tell ourselves, aren't they? And if you're lucky, you have moments of painful, excruciating lucidity. Usually they're in painful situations that we're confronted with that truth. And I guess it's what, you know, what we do with those moments, whether we can grow or whether we plug in deeper to the self-deception is like a lifelong question. But I definitely think, you know, people are far less honest with themselves than they pretend to be because we're all like lying to ourselves in certain sense. And, and uh, you know, dishonesty with others is one thing, but self-deception is like complete. I think it's everyone does it um, in my experience. And Daphne definitely does it. She kind of beats you to the punch because for however much, you know, however dishonest she is with other people, she's like most dishonest with herself. But she's also honest about the fact that she's dishonest, which is kind of disarming in some ways. It's also a kind of slightly manipulative thing that she does in that she preempts any critique that one could make of her by presenting it herself first and by sort of out-critiquing herself so that there's not much left for the people around her to say, except obviously about those blind spots that you mentioned that kind of are revealed later on in the novel. Yeah. I mean, it's a self-defense mechanism, right? It's like, I'm going to say the thing before you can. I'm going to disarm you with this level of candor about myself and self-knowledge. And in doing so, I'm going to obfuscate something else or, you know, kind of like redirect you. Like she's, again, she's, she's smart and she's shrewd in that way. And there's something really interesting too about the narration because she's narrating it in the first person, right? Yeah, she is. Yeah. Okay. I just like want to make sure I'm not misremembering, but, uh, is that she sort of tells the reader at certain points, like, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself or, oh, you know, that actually isn't true. Or there are these strange moments where she kind of pulls you out of the narrative for a moment and sort of announces the fact that she's unreliable. And I found that interesting too, because as a reader, it's a little bit destabilizing, but it's also, uh, like layering, some intrigue into the process of reading. You're like, okay, well, wait a minute. I was trusting you up until this point, And now you're telling me that you just lied. And that's sort of charming, but I'm also wondering what else I'm not 
being told or what else I have been told that might not be entirely true, right? Right. So those yeah. choices, that's th- those are interesting creative choices because you obviously can't overdo that. If you're doing that every other page, it's going to become too much, but you picked your moments with that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. I think when I was writing that sort of stuff, I was really thinking of my experience of getting to know people in life. I really wasn't basing that narrator like after other narrators in literature, I was like, what is it like to get to know people in life? And I was thinking, for example, when you tell a friend a story, let's say you tell a friend a story about an argument you had with your partner, you're always going to convey it in a, well, usually you're going to convey it in a way that's favorable to you because you're seeking empathy in that moment. But then what if you really want to get an objective appraisal? How do you tell that story to someone? And I think this is something that just happens in life that we, tell stories in a certain way to get a certain response and Daphne does that my narrator does that but then she has a moment of remorse where she says I think I've I've made you know for example there's a a scary stalker character called um, Richard Carlson and she says I think I've been a bit harsh and I'm not sure I've really conveyed him as he really was and I think there's just an anxiety of representation that all people feel but especially someone like Daphne, who has such a slippery relationship with the truth, when she's trying to be sincere, she's grasping for a standard of objectivity that none of us reach. Because the moment I'm telling a story, I'm deciding what elements go in. And if I'm describing another character, that's how, you know, I as a writer or the narrator perceives them. So I think it's just, I was trying to make us kind of, well, to to make my reader aware of of a kind of fallacy in most (laughs) first-person narration where reliability is over-exaggerated. Of course, of course, you know, their take on a particular scene, of course, it's their take on a particular scene influenced by their mood, whatever, their prejudices. And Daphne's just hyper aware of that. And she's aware of herself as a narrator. And so she says, this is how I experienced it, but I'm not entirely sure that was how it objectively was. And I think people think about that at the moment, you know. No, I think, yeah, it's like refreshing. It's honest. And I... I feel like maybe you see more of this in real life with with people who like have good minds and are honest brokers than you might might see in fiction. I just can't I can't think of too many narrators that I've encountered on the page who are sort of copping to that on the page as the story is unfolding. And I loved it and it caught me a little bit off guard and I think that one of the things about the way that characters are depicted in this novel that squares with my actual experience of lived life is this notion of like real complexity and the way that, like you say, you can be telling a story about somebody where they're sort of portrayed in a disfavorable light and you're trying to get empathy from your friends in the telling and all this kind of stuff. But people are complicated. Even people who are screwed up and are doing shitty things like Richard Grousman. Is that his name, Richard Grousman? Grousman. Grousman. Yeah, Grousman. Yeah. So like he's the stalker character and an unpleasant sort of desperate dude, but not without his humanity in the telling, at least from my perspective. And I appreciated that because I think too often in our online life, especially people are presented two dimensionally in this way, where it's either you're the boogeyman or you're the hero. And that doesn't square with my, my actual lived experience. Like people are so complicated and even people who do really fucked up shit are often 
if you spend enough time with them or almost always they're redeemable, right? They're like how many people are truly irredeemable, I guess, is a question I often will ask myself. Yeah. And it can't be the answer like, well, some people are just irredeemable and, you know, goodbye. I don't know. That doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I totally agree. And and in, I mean, in literature as well as like online, but like, you know, when people are seen as like just bad or good or whatever it is, they become symbols and they don't feel real. Like they become symbols of evil. And in real life, like no one is Dracula. I mean, if that's what you expect as like, you, you know, the foe that you might meet in your life, or it's like the person that you ought to watch out for, you're going to miss so much because that's not how evil presents itself in our real lives. Right. And so that's why I wanted to show like, yeah, this character, he's aggressive and he's invasive and he's frightening, but he's also super vulnerable and pitiable in many ways and has little moments of sort of kindness that are all the more disturbing for Daphne, right? Because she wishes he could just be sort of explicitly, she, she almost wishes he could be worse so that she could, condemn him more straightforwardly but you know that's never the case people are never just like symbols of evil or symbols of goodness we're all dappled and that's what makes people interesting and that's actually what makes characters sinister i think people think making them super evil is the way to go but it's injecting little bits of humanity and tenderness that makes that that we recognize more that's more familiar to us that makes them more scary because they're like well anyone could be like this yeah. And it's believable too. You know, like I did not doubt that Richard was a stalker uh, and that he was, you know, I, I never doubted the the character or thought of him, like you say, as a symbol. He seemed human and real to me. And I think that's critical. And I think that, I don't know, it just seems like the right choice. And I feel like, you know, as people are listening and we're talking about this, it's worth kind of giving uh, a bit more of an overview. I mean, we've alluded to it already, but Daphne is in Berlin to what? Find herself and escape herself. All the reasons we go traveling and dream of like expatriating and moving somewhere where nobody knows us and sort of having like a tabula rasa to begin again. And this novel, one of the things that I think it is, is a testament to the fact that we cannot escape ourselves and that a change of location is not a panacea. It's not going to fix anything, <laughs> right? And it's so easy to trick yourself into thinking that it would be the case, right? If I just move to Berlin, if I just go to Buenos Aires and can get out of here and start over again, but you take yourself with you wherever you go, right? Yeah, I think the main use of moving is that like if you change the wallpaper, you figure out if the wallpaper is always changing, you figure out what patterns belong to you more clearly. If anything, you're confronted with yourself more acutely and painfully. If you across like a whole diversity of places, the same things are happening. I mean, you have to be in like a very deep denial then not to realize "Mm, maybe I'm the issue here. You know, maybe it's not like Colombia or Paris or Berlin or whatever. Maybe it's me. But I mean, I think moving is useful in that it, sh- it re- the contrast forces you to learn things about yourself. Mm. Yeah, I've done that. I did. I moved to Paris in my 20s for like a few months, similar to Daphne, like thinking like, this is, this is it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to write a book. And I mean, just so cliche. And I look back and just cringe at myself. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I was trying to take French classes and 
very similar. I went to like the Alliance Francaise on uh, the Boulevard Respect and tried to learn, you know, and tried to uh, assimilate in some way. And I thought I might live there and all this stuff, but it is very inward to be an expatriate and to be someplace, especially where you don't have language fluency. And one of the things that frustrated me so much as a person who is good with language, I'm writerly, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I have some aptitude for. And all of that gets stripped away when you're living someplace where you aren't fluent. And one of the things that frustrated me so much was how two-dimensional I was in conversations with native French speakers. Uh, you know, I'd be sitting there trying to follow. Sometimes I could follow, but my expressive capability was lagging. And so they would get around to me and I'd be like, that is good. <laughs> you just sound like an idiot, basically. And that's frustrating. And I think you're trying to escape yourself by moving. And the irony is that you go someplace where you, you're like more inward than ever. And you're more confronted with your insides than ever. And so it's the opposite of escape. And it's also lonely. It can be lonely to and isolating to be unable to connect. So that's sort of the case for Daphne though she's pretty good at German, we should say. She seems to have like maybe more aptitude for like learning foreign languages than I do. But uh, I'm curious to know in your own experience of Berlin, did, are you fluent in German? Were you able to just hit the ground running or were you learning and were you kind of in that inward mode when you were there? I arrived totally not speaking one word of German, really. Okay. Yeah. And I had a bad combination of not speaking a word of German and promising myself in a weird self-punishment that I would not have a single non-German speaking friend. Mm -hmm. so, so basically I just had no friends at all to begin with. And I, and I, I refused to communicate in English, even though people in, like you can go to Berlin and, you know, I don't think you can have like a full life there and not speak German, but you can go there and get by. But I was not doing that. I was like, you know, no auf Deutsch everywhere I went, even though I didn't speak any German. So definitely it was that experience. And funnily enough, I think I felt gagged in, a, say, in the same way that my character Daphne is kind of gagged by her inability to speak the language. And probably, you know, by the time I came to writing, there was this, I'd been so repressed in what I could express that it fell onto the page in a way that was such a relief finally to get to feel fluent in something, you know, that and that that's something I remember very vividly from the experience of, of writing and just feeling, oh, that appetite had been starved by the difficulty of expressing myself in German. It's funny, I mean, you also become a different person in, in that, you know, in what you can express was very kind of taught and limited and you have certain kinds of exchanges repetitively and that's sort of who you become there, yeah. uh, which is quite a funny thing. Yeah, yeah. You kind of enforced like an immersion, did you? And you learned it. You feel like you, you got pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I got good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm, you know, yeah. I, I sort of really forced it. I mean, at the time, I didn't. I, I had all these great expectations of myself when I was like a young child and a teenager. And in my early adulthood, I had this sort of crushing sense of disappointment that I wasn't doing anything. And so, one of the things I, I set my heart on was, well, you will be fluent in German. You know. Time is not wasted if you can learn a language. So I was very straight uh, with German. I'm doing that with my, I mean, I'm, I'm using Duolingo. I've been using it for, you know, a long time. Uh, started during the pandemic, but I'm, I'm going to learn French. I speak a little Spanish already. I'm kind of like mediocre in both, but I have French roots in my family. And uh, 
I'm like, I got to learn. So I'm trying. But I found that when I lived there, people would just start speaking English to me. I'd go in and start fumbling and they'd be like, what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, It's hard. It's hard to enforce the immersion the way that you did in Germany. You sort of insisted on being spoken to in German, even though you didn't understand a word. Yeah. I used to say, I don't know where I got this confidence because I I mean, I don't know where I got this confidence, but I would say to people, no, can we speak in German? I'm trying to learn German. And unless they were super hot, and that's such a like bold demand in like a shop situation or whatever, that they would usually then just go along with it, you know? Um, And you know, you can pay attention to cues. Usually the context, if someone is looking at you confused and holding up a receipt, you can think, okay, they want to know if I want it or not. You know, I was able to use those kind of cues to get by, but I would ask people, please speak to me in German. Please don't speak to me in English. Wow. And mostly they did it. Yeah, and I mean, also there are a lot, in, in the area of Berlin where I was living, there are a lot of like people who are originally from Turkey, originally from Syria, who all speak like amazing German, but because they have an immigrant background and, and usually a multilingual they were they were like really patient with me in general in terms of understanding my linguistic struggles. And outside of Berlin, I found people way less patient. But in Berlin, with people who might have learned German themselves, they were way more willing to like improvise with me, and that and that was really helpful. Oh, that's good. That's good. What part of Ger- or what part of Berlin were you living in? I was in Neukölln and Kreuzberg, okay. which have like a large Syrian and Turkish population. And how long were you there? I was there for two years and now I've been living in Berlin again for like three months. Okay. So you, you were there for two years and then you left. You've been all over. You have this wonderful yeah. like international existence. Look at you. Right. I'm yeah. jealous. You've been all over the place. So you were in Berlin for two years and then where did you go? Then I went to the UK to do a master's degree there and I began a PhD, which I gave up. Oh, you so did? So I okay. did like a year... Yeah, I did two years of a master's and then began a PhD and then moved back to Berlin recently. Master's in philosophy? Yeah. Okay. And then you're back in Berlin. That's your hometown now. Yeah. Yeah. It's the place that was, you know, everyone talks about like a formative age. And I very deliberately was like, this is my formative age. Let me go. Let me go to Berlin and make it happen there. And because it happened there, you know, I have very deep friendships and and like a deep affection for the place. Um, And yeah, I'm really fond of the city, despite the fact that, you know, some people will read this book and be like, this is a, why on earth would you want to be in Berlin? The depiction of Berlin isn't as a particularly welcoming, ex- like happy place. But, you know, I personally love it, despite what happens to my character, Daphne. Yeah, I should say that did sort of subvert my expectations or like my, I, you know, I've spent very minimal time in Berlin and I am have this sort of like, picture of it in my mind as this bohemian utopia where people can live and you know paint and all this stuff and go to the doctor <laughs> all these things that in america are difficult and i guess i liked the fact again i liked the fact that you sort of uh, took me down a peg there i was like oh yeah this is just a place like any other place people are a mess there's some good things about it some bad things about it there's menace it is hard in ways that I think are generally speaking specific to women. It's hard to be a young single woman anywhere, or it's just a young woman anywhere. And especially when you're in a place where you don't know a lot of people, I don't know, your book portrays that like the, the Richard character, who's a stalker, some of the precautions that she, t- that Daphne takes or doesn't take like it's uh 
requires a little bit of metal, right? To kind of live anywhere, but especially a place where you're sort of out of your element. Totally. Totally. I mean, when you're out of your element, you know, I mean, my character and I myself, like I had a great social need because I didn't know anyone in the city, which meant that I wasn't always necessarily very discerning about who I would like agree to spend time with or the kind of situations I would put myself in. And I think in a lot of kind of coming of age novels where the protagonist is a man, those moments are like joyful, misspent youth moments where you like went to like, you know, you took drugs with some dodgy guys, but like obviously everything turns out okay. And I think there is a bit, I mean, this, there's a tight, you know, that I don't want to like exaggerate it, but there was, there's always a bit of menace in that on those kind of occasions. I'm never quite comfortable until I get home, the door is locked behind me. And then I can say that was a great night. But throughout it, you you know, whether it's like actual experiences that happen or whether it's what you watch on TV, what you read, what you see in the news, there's always a double edge in the experience of women, young women trying to discover themselves and go out and have fun. There's always this like slight edge of menace, which makes difficulty in life. I think it makes for great atmosphere in fiction. Right. I think back to my youth and some of the things that I did. And just like, wow, we, we are lucky to have made it through. I almost feel like anybody who makes it through their like teenage years and into their 20s, if you make it through that, you, there's a little bit of luck involved. There's so many things that could have gone bad. And I think maybe for women, it's especially so. There's lots of situations where things, especially when you're doing stupid things, <laughs> you know, or you're yeah. putting yourself in situations where you might right. be exposed to bad actors uh, more readily, you know, I worry about that. My daughter, she's starting, she's going to be a teenager soon. I'm just like, Oh mm -hmm. shit. I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. So, but yeah. that's life. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's also admirable and correct for Daphne or for anyone. If they have the opportunity to go, you got to live your life. I mean, you can't be constantly on guard. She's out there mixing it up. I mean, she's not, but you know, at the same time, there's something, I love this about her. She's a runner. So she's like running obsessively. She's got some food issues uh, and she's burning a lot of calories, <laughs> but she's not really out on the town. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of friends, but she kind of goes to bed early, does her French language or her German language lessons and gets up in the morning and she's kind of living a square life in a lot of senses, right? Right. Yeah, I think she's super square, actually. Like that's a really that's a really good description of her. Yeah. Um she she's pretty square and not I mean, she's I think she's cool because I have affection towards her, but she's not the coolest. Like she's not going to Berghain or like famous Berlin nightclubs and having a crazy time and like hooking up with loads of people. You know, she has this sort of very regulated life. She's basically like a good girl. You know, my impression of her is like she she studied hard at university. She studied hard at school. And suddenly she's like unleashed into a structureless existence and has to try and find meaning in it. And she just impo imposes her own version of like a rigid order. You know, I think that's something that like happens to people who who are very young, like in their early 20s. They, they sort of either kind of happily or unhappily collapse into the disorderlessness of life or they in impose a rigidity. And she, she's the latter kind of person. 
and and it's very ill suited to Berlin. You know, it's like if she was living in whatever I don't know London or like New York, it would make a lot more sense. But she's in this chaotic place trying to be a square, <laughs> like making best efforts to just be like very normal and regulated, and it doesn't quite work for her. Yeah, I feel like I'm kind of that way. I like to have a system. I'm very like much a creature of habit. I don't know. You, you, I mean, most writers probably are, and I think that there's something so structureless about writing a book because there's really nobody holding your feet to the fire that you almost have to impose a certain order on yourself to get it done because it typically takes uh, months, usually years. And I mean, right. Was that the case for yeah. you? Totally. Totally. I'm my, my friend was like, said to me recently that I approached like writing in the most sort of bureaucratic manner she'd ever witnessed. You know, she was like, <laughs> I thought it was like cool and like rock and roll and that you would like go out and drink. And I was like, no, I need to be hydrated. Like <laughs> I need to be at my desk at a certain time. Have my um, coffee, all the things. Exactly. And then I mean, eat, I, your, eat your, uh, what your simit? How do you pronounce it? The Turkish sesame bread for oh, lunch? Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Your I still falafel. do that. Yeah. yeah, I always go and get the same stuff. Yeah, very regulated. I mean, I enjoy the image that writers have as these kind of like cool, bohemian, whatever, drinking rock and roll people. I kind of try and siphon some of that off and, and borrow it, but it's like totally untrue. Sort of like how I am and how most writers I know are. Well, there's a French uh, author, it's like Baudelaire or somebody, I don't know who it was, but he's basically said something to the effect of like, disciplined and orderly in life wild on the page like you know you have to (laughs) you have to be able to get the work done and the only way really i don't know i guess there are a few people who can really live in a kind of disordered way and get work done but i feel like it's diminishing returns it's kind of a candle that burns at both ends it doesn't last at a certain point and if you want to have a long career and write a lot of books I don't see how else you do it other than to kind of protect your time, uh, protect your well-being to a certain extent. You have to kind of keep your wits about you, right? It requires your best mind, I think, to write well. And I don't know how to do that. Like, I can't like, I have to sleep. I need my water. Just like you, got to have my caffeine, (laughs) you know, go for a walk, get my like head cleared out. Like there's all these different rituals that I think we adapt and it's, you know, it's specific within certain parameters to each person, but it's mostly the same, I think. Are you a runner? I am a runner, yes. Every day? Not such an intense runner as Daphne, um, but I am a runner within reason, like maybe four or five times a week, yeah. But I mean, the more, I think, I think a lot of people, for a lot of people like running, there are all these like books about running and writing. There's like, I think Murakami wrote a book about writing and running i i run for sort of separate reasons than i write they don't really feed each other actually i think the kind of i run because like you know mainly it's like to be in a good mood or to get a kind of emotional intense to liberate an emotional intensity and i get that through writing also so for me those two things are more in competition with each other than complementary although sometimes you know if i've been working and i need to clear my head it's a good thing to do but i don't think it's like conducive to better writing because I'm trying to maximize the time I get to spend at my desk and writing and running competes with that. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm a hiker, but it's the same thing. I think it's essentially like taking a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. I mean, it's like a mood altering situation. I mean, it's also like you want to be in good health 
but I, you know, there's a lot of writers I've interviewed on this show, a lot of writers I know in my life who are runners. It like, you know, helps to quell anxiety. It sort of changes, what is it? It just changes your, it changes your mood. And I don't understand how people writerly or not exist without it. I guess maybe they just take a pill (laughs) and it's much easier, (laughs) but I don't know. I love, but I also love it. Like I genuinely, I think people who run at a certain point, you, you learn to love, like love the punishment, right? Because right. running, yeah, is, I mean, running I, is brutal. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think it is. And I think ra- learning to be just, disco- to, you know, that whole cliche thing of like being uncomfortable and accepting it <laughs> and not freaking out about it. And like what, what we were talking about earlier in terms of knowing when something is hard and you're learning from it versus when something is hard and like you're injuring your knee and you need to stop. <laughs> like that, that analogy does transfer through to, to writing. And I think. I try, I use like a lot of sports analogies when I'm writing to think, okay, is this like building something or am I just like overusing it and do I need to step away from it? Yeah. Are you competitive? Like, are you somebody who like pushes yourself? You're not like a, it doesn't seem like you're a marathon runner. Maybe you are. I don't know. I'm pretty competitive, but more I play soccer and I'm abnormally competitive and have to like really discipline myself to be normal and it's the only thing that i'm super competitive i only allow my competitiveness to come out in that very particular context but um i I, to be socially decent i have to like make a great effort to rein that competitiveness in what position like right back or center defensive mid okay you still play yes i play in berlin you have like a club team or something you're on i play like pick up with like some local people yeah and I try and be civilized and normal about the possibility of losing, but secretly underneath, I, you know, I shake hands and I'm normal, but underneath it, I'm like seething. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's like not a nice part of my character. You screaming in German on the field and everything? Like, yes. Yeah. You are. And I, I, I talk a lot you know, with my okay. like accented German and they're like, who's this girl? Like be quiet, but I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Milwaukee, part of my childhood in Wisconsin, which is a very Germanic place. Uh, it's like Scandinavian and Germanic. And my coach on a team that I was on was like a competitive, what do you, what do you call it? Club team. You had to try out to make it. So I was like a big in, you know, big soccer player as a kid. And he had been in the army and was a Vietnam veteran and had been stationed after Vietnam in West Germany and was like very, and it was all, you know, he was German, but his last name was Schmidt. And, uh, so when we were on the field, he taught us German words to communicate so that the other teams wouldn't know what we were talking about. So as a kid, I was like, Rex, you know, like it was like Rex and Lynx. That's what I remember. He's like, so yeah, I grew up shouting in German on a soccer field. Yeah. So uh, you know the joy of it. I do. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to shout, it's like maybe more fun to shout in German. <laughs> totally. Totally. So I want to get back to this idea of your novel being sharply observed, which it is uh, to a really high degree, and how psychologically astute Daphne is. You know, I don't mean to psychoanalyze you, but like the fact that you have a philosophy degree, I feel like that might, might inform your ability to render a character who is this psychologically knowing 
I feel like people who do that have often read a lot of books about psychology or have often been in talk therapy. Uh, other times, I think people who are sober and who have been through 12-step programs can be particularly fluent psychologically and able to sort of articulate their uh, psychological experiences and their emotional difficulties more clearly than other people who might not have had to go through those fires and sort of take a, a long look at themselves. But I'm just wondering where it comes from. Like, do you have mm -hmm. a sense of how, because, you know, in order to write Daphne, you have to be pretty psychologically astute, astute yourself. Is this an area of study that you're interested in? Do you feel like the philosophy has informed it? Are there other things? I think, I mean, I think philosophy definitely has informed it in that philosophy or the kind of philosophy I did, which was like pretty kind of continental, continental and existential types of philosophy, they encourage the form of thinking that Daphne often kind of indulges in, which is self-analysis, which I guess be, is sort of psychotherapeutic in some ways, but it's more like thinking very deeply about your life and about the stakes of your life and taking everything seriously. And that's like what philosophy does. That's why I was saying earlier, philosophy is definitely not funny for, for all the qualities that studying it, you know, for, for how, however enjoyable it is, it's not funny. And I think the kind of endless dissection um, of everything is something that I learned studying philosophy, where I understood that you could, you could have, you know, a, a thesis statement and you could spend of a line and you could spend five pages analyzing the soundness and the validity of that statement <laughs> and that was actually like encouraged that kind of analysis and dissection so I think that sort of that sort of thinking comes from there in terms of the other psychological elements well when I was younger I like my character Daphne had an eating disorder and the kind of treatment that I went through for it was actually a type of 12-step um, treatment very similar to what people would know from AA or NA. And so all that language was very familiar to me. And my understanding of Daphne's eating disorder, which I would qualify as a kind of addiction, was very informed by, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs, which I think are super brilliant and, and a huge source of insight for how people operate and, and why people act and why people do things they know they ought not to. Because... When it comes to those kinds of behaviors, people always point out how irrational they are. Like, you know, you know, drinking, like taking this drug or drinking or, or whatever it is, you know, it's bad for you. Why are you still doing it? And people think that it's like an intellectual issue when it has nothing to do with the intellect. People who are suffering from substance abuse issues are like excruciatingly aware of what of the problem, but they just can't act on it. So I think 12 step was very useful for me in understanding that psychological reality and in rendering it in in my character Daphne. Yeah, no doubt. I think she even says it at some point in the book explicitly that it's like impossible for somebody who's struggling to admit. You know, I can't remember it verbatim, but you know what I'm talking about? She sort of says yeah. it's hard it's hard for somebody who's struggling with an addiction or struggling with some sort of uh, disordered uh, pattern of behavior to kind of admit it to themselves or to Totally to come to full grips. Maybe they sort of know, like you say, they know, but they can't fully know or fully admit it. Right, right. Yeah, and I think another aspect is, you know, there's this idea that Daphne is a character who lies. 
And, and there are all kinds of reasons she does that and she tries to analyze why she does that. But but one of the straightforward reasons is that she's addicted and, you know, it's difficult to like call, call a whole group of people, I'm not calling a whole group of people liars, but part of addiction in my understanding is secretive covert behavior that you're not going to be honest about with the people around you. Because if someone asks you who, who deeply cares about you, have you relapsed? Like, it's really hard to be honest with them, right? And I think those kinds of behaviors force people into lies and lying is part of the illness and that you're protecting the addiction. And so that was something that I also thought like Daphne really kind of illustrates is how hard it is to be honest. Obviously, it's very hard to be honest with yourself because if you're endangering your life, like you, if you truly realized it, you think that you would stop. But being honest with others about how you're behaving when you know what they want to hear is really, really hard and much more common than people think. Like it affects so many people. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I mean, I, my my understanding is that people who are struggling with addiction are often very skilled liars. It's like a learned, something you learn how to do well, because like you say, you're protecting that addiction. So I don't know. I just found that the rendering of Daphne on the page to be really knowing and like deeply intelligent and dimensional and surprising. And to go back to this recurring phrase of, you know, how, how sharply observed this book is, you wrote a piece, I believe for Shondaland, is that right? Where you broke down your method, which I don't see very often. I wish I saw it more from writers. It would make for interesting conversation, but you talk about a kind of step-by-step process. And obviously this isn't the entire thing, but it is, something very related to how sharply observed this book is and how I, what I kept, another thing I kept saying to myself is like, wow, B can write about anything and make it interesting. It doesn't even have to be something super kinetic or sensational for me to be leaning in. She could be talking about like the kitchen, you know, or what somebody's having for breakfast or just very good at, at observing and finding new meanings and things that might not be immediately evident. And then I read this piece in Shondaland where you're breaking it down and it makes makes it all kind of click into focus how you did it. So for the benefit of listeners, let's just go through this real quick. The first thing you, you advise people to do if they wanted to follow your method is you say, look at the thing you're trying to describe. Really look. So this isn't just like a superficial looking. This is a deep looking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really look at what's in front of you. And like that seems straightforward, but it's hard because we're also distracted. Mm-hmm. It takes kind of discipline. Yeah. And that's also tied to what you were saying earlier about your philosophy training, you know, where you spend five pages breaking down something that the ordinary person would spend like five <laughs> seconds <laughs> breaking down, right? right. Uh, you have to kind of force yourself to keep sitting there and to keep looking yeah. and to keep thinking about it. Yeah. And stay with it. Be patient. Yeah. So number two. Let your mind make all kinds of associations. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's just looking at something. I think like the, the, it's just the best descriptions for things are often things that are not like directly related to the thing in front of you and they kind of convey them better. So like one thing that I often think about is like the idea of like a moon, which is what the example I gave in the essay is like a knuckle, you know, it's not something we might, ordinarily think but for me it really works in terms of how 
how how white the moon can look and it can look like someone's the knuckle of a gripped hand and and that's not an ordinary association and so it's that kind of thing where you really liberate your thoughts to make all kinds of associations that are not in like the realm of the moon like because we all know like certain things that are associated with the moon like i don't know like it's always seen as something feminine um it's always seen i mean you know something beautiful and and those qualities might work but i think it's really disassociating from the kind of common phrases around the thing you're trying to describe to really see it afresh got it got it and then the third thing is uh you say simultaneously try to think about the atmosphere you're working to create so if you're making like you're looking at a thing and you're really looking at it and then you're making all kinds of associations it's not enough to just sort of make all these associations and pick one you're then saying that you have to also consider context like what is the story you're telling what is the setting of the story what is the atmosphere and the mood and the tone of the thing that you're trying to create? And then how might you land on an association that best fits into that tapestry? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yes. Right? So, I mean, if you think about, let's say the description of like a window or something, you could, let's say you have like a, a window and you can see the darkness outside. You could see it as like, I don't know, this is like not good, but it's like, it could be gasping darkness, right? Or it's, it, it, expelling something or you could see the windows giving shape to the darkness and those two things both kind of work but they're very different in terms of that the first one is quite scary and the second one you're you know implying something more cozy and familiar so obviously having the free associations is great but then you have to be aware of the effect that you're going to have and it can be super jarring if you read quite like a gothic description of I don't know, sunset or something. If it's described as bloody in a super romantic context, you're like, <laughs> that might work, but it doesn't make sense here. And so right. also being attuned to the atmosphere that you're trying to create. I think a lot of people do do this naturally, but yeah. Okay. And then you say, the fourth thing is you say, write metaphorically and send it to your friends. Yeah. So what do you mean by write? I mean, write metaphorically. Those, I, think those... I, I think I went write a metaphor that was a sort of shortened, condensed version of saying, you know, write the metaphor. And I think people know what like metaphoric writing means. You know, it's like stuff in poetry and stuff that usually there's too much of in like a lot of text. So, like I have like four metaphors a page sometimes and I'm like, this is too much. That's right. what I mean by write metaphorically is that don't hesitate to over embroider the language, especially at the beginning and to use many, many adjectives especially in that first part. And then you can pare it down. But to get it right, I think I just, like the way I often think about it with like metaphors or descriptions is like, you know, when you're trying to hang up a picture on a wall and you have a hammer and a nail and like you, you're, you're looking for like where it's going to ring hollow, where you can put the hammer in. You have to go all over the wall in order to get to the hollow point. And so in terms of like words, I say the same thing. I'm like, throw loads of words at the wall and one of them will hang correct. And that's like what I meant in terms of metaphors. And then this idea of sharing with friends, like I just talked with Samantha Irby on this show not too long ago, and I was kind of getting into how she does it. And she's a very funny writer and writes these personal essays that are like super candid. And she has this great conversational voice on the page in a way that is not entirely dissimilar to Daphne Ferber, your heroine or your anti-heroine. And uh, one of the things Samantha Irby said, which sort of squares with how you wrote your book, is that she keeps a friend in mind as she's writing, and she writes it as if she were telling 
her good friend a story. And it has to meet that standard. Like, would my friend, if I were telling this story to my best friend or, you know, in your case, I guess a collection of best friends, you have a whole group that you're sending this thing to. Uh, that to me seems like a really practical, useful, intelligent way to hone your narrative capability. That is what we should be doing, right? You want to treat the, the ultimate reader of your book like a friend. You hope to connect somehow on that level, if that's a way of putting it, right? Like there's an intimacy between writer and reader, especially when there's a good connection, when the work is really speaking to the reader. And maybe in particular, when it's written in the first person, you really do feel like, wow, this person's just talking to me. But I think that's something that maybe is easy to get away from, but it's a useful kind of North Star. Like, what if I were telling this to my best friend? How would I keep them entertained? What would I have to say to cause them to lean in as opposed to like rolling their eyes or whatever your best friend would do if you were failing to meet the mark, right? Totally. I mean, I think especially when it comes to things like if you're like thinking of writing something metaphoric, it has to be comprehensible. And for my friend, I'm like, if my friend cannot understand it in like a text, then it's too complex or it's not right and I need to change it, which I, I think... I have that standard with writing because for me, like the most important thing in my writing is that it be entertaining. I mean, I, I would like it also to be true in some way, but mainly I want it to give people pleasure. And I know how beleaguered people are in terms of things competing for their attention span. And so for me, it's all in terms of sharing it with my friends who are not necessarily like literary people who spend a lot of time reading it's like, do they get it immediately? If not, I haven't been precise enough or I haven't captured the essence in a way that's universally relatable and I need to rework it. That's, it's also that standard of just kind of, are they getting it straight away in a short amount of time? If not, I rework it. So another thing, and, and you know, I, I don't want to spoil the novel for people listening who have not read. So I'm not going to get into the plot details of what happens in the back half of your book. But I think we've said enough about Daphne and her particular uh, character and kind of emotional uh, state to talk about this idea of like the unhinged woman or the millennial sad girl trope uh, that you wrote about in a piece for the Irish Times, I believe, sort of taking it apart yeah. uh, because this is a way that uh, novels like yours, stories featuring a young millennial woman as the protagonist who might be dealing with some of the issues that Daphne is dealing with, like an eating disorder, compulsively exercising, not quite knowing where she fits into the world, trying to impose order on an otherwise chaotic situation and maybe succeeding only half the time, you know, all these different things. There's a reductive way in which characters like this are often talked about, uh, especially in reviews, is what you're arguing, correct? Yes. I mean, a funny illustration of this is I was recently asked to review a book and it was sold, like the, the way they described the book was sad girl lit, but better than you might expect. And I was like, this is the person trying to sell the book who is describing it as sad girl better than you might expect. And this was a book that's actually like deeply engaged with kind of capitalism and 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 all these profound issues. And I was like, oh, but they're wrapping it as like 
you think it won't be deep because there's a sad woman in it, but actually it's deep. And, and that's like extremely typical for the current women's literary market and how we talk about women's work. And it's something I find, you know, like uh, disappointing and, and reductive. Like when men are sad in literature, we always give it this kind of existential profundity. It's like, oh, they're talking about alienation and it's Camus and it's Sartre and it's in this tradition <laughs> of great philosophers. Right. Um, but when women are sad, it's like, oh, she's so messy and sad and, oh, can't they cheer up? And and I, I'm, I'm not sure why it is that women's emotions are not granted the same existential gravitas that men's are, but it's a recurring feature uh, in how we talk about women's fiction, like, Recently, there was this, you know, I, I, I went into a bookshop in England and they had like the unhinged women section, which was the thing that motivated. And, and yeah. the people who were in there were like Sylvia Plath, you know. Who you're of a the, fan like, of. Huge fan. But it's like one of the most serious poets of the 20th century, unhinged woman, you know. And I'm just like, wow, these labels are really not so distinct from hysterical women. And we might have cute hashtags and cute pink covers to kind of, you know, um, smarten it up. But ultimately, the kind of psychotherapeutization, or I'm not quite sure what the word is, the sort of psychoanalytic take on everything women do who are complex is really problematic. And I'm very opposed to it. Well, yeah. And I think, well, and I think another way to look at it too is like, we're all unhinged. And it's right. not fair to just give that label to women. Like, I mean, for goodness, I mean, I think you bring up Hemingway in the essay, like super unhinged dude in a lot of ways, you know, and like right. yet yeah, doesn't right. get that same treatment. And it goes kind of circularly back to what we were talking about at the beginning about how complicated people are. Right. And I think that when you tr try to kind of winnow down, like, it's not even a category. That's the thing. Winnowing it down into a category, taking a bunch of books that might nominally share certain things in common, namely like a female protagonist who is dealing with shit and lumping it into a category called unhinged women lit or sad girl lit. It's, you know, I sort of get it at the level of like Madison Avenue groupthink where you're trying to like talk to consumers in a way that they can quickly grasp what it is. But I also understand how it can be really disconcerting for an author who's tried, like, who's like labored to like render like a nuanced and three-dimensional complex female character and to just have it sort of dumped into this group. And I should say my debut novel years and years ago, I distinctly remember them being like, oh yeah, this is part of the new lad lit movement, like L-A-D. <sighs> And I was like, all right, uh, you know, I don't, I, but I, I had the same feeling. It's weird when somebody tells you something like that or you read about it and it's like, well, that wasn't really what I was going for, but okay. And it doesn't feel, it feels almost like you've been mis, mis, misnamed or mislabeled. That is what, that is what it is. But it's like, a, it's a weird feeling. And I got to say too, that uh, maybe to your pleasant surprise, and I, I might not be comprehensive here, but I feel like the, the reviews that I have read of Berlin have been fairly good about that. Like I haven't seen too many assessments of it that might anger you. <laughs> like ha have there been have there been some? Did I miss some? Because I know it, it it published in the UK and maybe it's just publishing in the states. So there's been like a, a lag between the reviews. But right, like it's been fairly good. I feel like the New York Times review, the Washington Post review. 
I didn't see like really reductive language in it though. I read quickly. Maybe I missed it. No, no, I have to say you're right. So it came out in the UK a while before it came out in the US. And I was like astonished. <laughs> I was astonished and surprised by the US reviews, even the ones that contained kind of nuanced critique that weren't like wholeheartedly like, this is amazing, but that said, this is good, this is less good. But I felt like I was taken so seriously in the US. I mean, the new the review in the New York Times opens with a Hemingway quote. I was like, <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. Because in the UK, consistently, there have been so, you know, good, bad reviews, you know, it's always nicer to get a good review, but I would actually rather get a bad review that took the work kind of seriously than a good review that was a bit patronizing. And in the UK, I got a number of reviews that were like, you know, Daphne joins the crowded, messy millennial table of women trying to figure this themselves out. Mm-hmm. And like many other women, she's self-conscious and worries about her weight. And I was like, this is reductive. <laughs> that felt reductive. So, you know, in the US, when I got reviews that even were critical, I felt like they took the character seriously and didn't try and sort of reduce her to like a type of woman. And therefore I was really happy and I felt taken seriously, which is like, what more can you hope for to be taken seriously? And in the US, I think it was much better than the UK, actually. I think the UK in general, I think when I wrote the article for the Irish Times, most of my illustrations of what I describe as like misogynistic tropes came from the UK press. So maybe they have some work to do. Okay, so wait, because I, I I read the piece in the Irish Times and you link to certain like buzzwords, I think. So you're pointing to instances where it has been used. I did not click through. Were those reviews of your book that you were pointing to or there was reviews of other books? Reviews of other books, yeah. Okay. I couldn't make it quite to, I sort of thought it would be a bit pathetic to be like, these are reviews <laughs> that I'm angry about. You know, I and I had say. to sort of, yeah, I had to think, you know, I, I obviously had... I'd been thinking about this before I got my review because there was a big article in The Guardian about the messy millennial woman, which grouped a number of works of drama and fiction and described this as the new irritating trope of woman. And it it included things like I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole. I'm not sure if that series was very big in the US, but it was huge in the UK. Fleabag, um, all kinds of novels that deal with incredibly disparate issues, and they were all lumped under the same umbrella. And, and that was in The Guardian. And I was really irritated by that. And actually, many, many of the articles that I linked to, which illustrated this kind of tropification, were from UK press, specifically The Guardian, The, T- the Times Literary Supplement. Yeah, so the US has been like spared <laughs> that critique. I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I'm not as familiar with, with the US scene, but it seemed much better to me. Okay, so here's a question I have for you. Because again, I clearly didn't read carefully enough. When did you publish the piece in the Irish Times? Um, about, I think about three months ago. I can't, I can't remember exactly the date. So after the reviews had come out for your novel in the UK. Yeah. yeah. So you were kind of reacting to that to some extent. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a bit reactionary. Yes. All right. But I mean, like, and, and that's not a criticism. I'm just saying like that was right, happening right, in right. the aftermath. And I kind of feel like for somebody who read your novel and was going to review it for a major paper of record in the United States, they would probably Google you and would read that. And I was thinking that's actually quite shrewd to, to, for, for uh, B to have written this, because if you're a, a critic and you read that, it's going to give you pause, <laughs> right. you know, before you start, you know, some oversimplifying things or lumping right 
this novel in with other novels that it really doesn't have all that much in common with, or you know yeah. what I'm saying. So kudos to you. I feel like that's something maybe writers maybe think about doing or writers sometimes do that. It's a way of sort of getting out in front of bad criticism. I don't know if you conceived mm-hmm. of it that way, but it might perform that function as the point. Right. I think I sort of was expecting more of the same from the US. I think I, well, I had a hard think, obviously, like, I don't think writers should write sort of angry responses. I was like, I secretly wanted to do that, obviously. But, you know, when I got <laughs> yeah. a review that I, that was, in my mind, very, like, used only tropes, I was like annoyed by it. But when I understood that it was something that was affecting many, many other writers' work, um, I, um, like, Megan Nolan, I don't know if you know who she is, like, she read the article and was like, everyone talks about my work in a similar way, and I find it really irritating. And so when I understood that it was affecting many other women's work, I was like, okay, it's justified for me to say this, because this is a critique of kind of contemporary critical receptions of women's work. It's not only about me. <laughs> so I think that's why right. it, it felt okay doing it. And yeah. I still stand by it. And when, when I got this request for review recently that described, you know, an, a complex, interesting, multi-layered novel as sad girl lit, but deeper than you think. I was like, clearly this message still needs to get out far and wide because people are still using this language. And it's fine to like say a work is bad or to say it's derivative or we've seen it a million times before, but just using that particular language, I think is quite problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just to go back, we talked a bit uh, a moment ago about your love of Sylvia Plath. She's referenced and allude, her, you know, her work is alluded to throughout this novel. I probably even missed some of the allusions. I imagine there's some like little Easter eggs in there that I missed. Virginia Woolf is another one. Are there others? Like, who are the other? Great Expectations. Oh, Great Expectations. Oh, The yeah. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, Lord of the Rings, that's <laughs> Which, true. To, to comedic effect, like, you know, that Daphne has this love for The Lord of the Rings. But I feel like Sylvia Plath is sort of, uh, you know, what do you call an icon totally. uh, of female literature and complicated female narrators and, you know, really dimensional um, human beings on the page who might not square with like preconceived gender expectations and so on and so forth. So she was instructive to you. Are there others, Virginia Woolf? I mean, obviously they're in the book, but can you talk a little bit about your influences when it came to writing Berlin? Yeah. I mean, I think, Sylvia Plath was someone who I read at a young age, um, you know, and who I was very influenced by. Most specifically, what I was influenced by with Plath is her ability. I mean, people think of The Bell Jar as quite a depressing novel, but I think it's actually something people often overlook is the fact that it's actually full of humour. It's a really, really funny novel. And people forget that because they see it through the lens of, you know, how she died and what happened at the end of her life. But The Bell Jar was definitely one of them you know, Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own was something that my mum gave me when I was like 18 and kind of developing a feminist consciousness. And like that definitely had an influence. I would say in terms of contemporary literature, Otessa Moshfeg had a great impact on me, particularly um, her novels, Eileen and My Year of Rest and Relaxation. I think what Moshfeg did for me was really freed me in terms of understanding that I did not have to create likable characters and that my narrator did not have to be likable because I think likability is like a big issue in women's fiction or I mean in women's lives in general you know being nice is very important and being amenable and I think 
Moshfeg really threw that out the window and was like, guys, do whatever you want. Women can be nasty, women can be mean or selfish, and you can still create great characters. And so that's really what she gave me. Hmm. Yeah, she's been, she's had a big impact. And I've seen her work, I should say, lumped in to think pieces where it's like her sad girl right. fans. I think I just read something the other day where it was like, oh, Tessa Moshfeg is worried about her sad girl fans. Yes. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's the way that she put it. It might be the way that it was characterized, you know, but she gets a lot of that, right? Yeah. I mean, actually she was definitely on that table of unhinged women along with Sylvia Plath, like a lot of Moshfeg on there. I was a bit sure. disappointed. I read that article, a Guardian article. Um, I was a little bit disappointed that she she said, I'm concerned about my sad girl fans. I think, I mean, they did quote her. Not That wasn't just the title, that was in her language. And I was like, don't, you know, I was a bit disappointed that she would play into that trope for her own fans. Because like, I'm a huge Moshveg fan and I'm not like a sad girl. I just love the darkness and the brilliance. And so, you know, I think it's important not to like reduce your fan base either in that sense right. don't or don't encourage don't encourage those guardian writers to keep using oh, that uh, exactly terminology, exactly right? guardian <laughs> needs to get it under control <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it's been fun talking with you i loved your book and it's your debut and you said you had a harder time writing your second book which it sounds like you're done with and it's always heartening to me whenever I hear somebody talk about how hard of a time they had writing a book. <laughs> it's never it's never pleasant when someone's like, it was a joy. So uh, can you give us any hints as to what this next one is about? Yes, it was definitely much more of a process than the first, as you say, because I had expectations, you know, I'd written a novel and I was like, I had expectations at least that I would finish a novel that might be, you know, be good enough to be published. And that was a whole different situation to like WhatsApping funny things to my friends. And so I definitely, the pressure affected me in some ways. The next novel explores, again, it's about complex female character and it explores the question of evil and women being evil or women having the capacity for evil or like problematic moral action. I think that like very often when we talk about women doing bad things. Like I think about like the Elizabeth Holmes case. Elizabeth Holmes's defense in her case was that she had a shitty boyfriend, basically, who was controlling and it was a coercive relationship, which, you know, I'm not commenting on that, whether or not that's true. But I think we often think of women as not having even the agency to commit evil acts. Or if they do, they're kind of like a silencer between one man shooting a bullet at another or like they're the handshake between the daddy who was mean and the boyfriend who's mean and so I'm really interested in women and their capacity to do bad things and how we think about that in a patriarchal society and yeah I'm not going to say too much but my character is someone who is aware deeply aware of how women are seen as kind of agentless and who exploits that rather cynically to her advantage in executing her ends. Okay. You should, I just talked to uh, Ivy Pakoda on this show. She wrote a novel called Sing Her Down, which is about women, a couple of women who are incarcerated, who have committed violent acts. You might like it. Yeah, I, I saw actually, I, I saw your conversation with her about, and she was writing oh, about um, evil. No, no, she was writing about violence as opposed to evil. Yes. And I was like, you know, you had those one of those things where you're like, damn, someone else has thought about it. But if she's thought about it, I'm onto something. So it was like, that's that, right. That's your no, feeling. I actually, yeah, yeah I liked it. I, I yeah. think that um, I feel like 
there has that dimension of the human experience needs to be explored or hasn't been explored as much. And I think it's tied to maybe like, I mean, I haven't thought about this deeply enough to understand exactly all the different reasons why, but a couple of things that come to mind is like the reckoning that we have had with the bad behavior of men, the me too movement. There's been so much of that. And then I think it also, and so in a way that I think has maybe like overwhelmed the conversation in that direction. And it's, in some ways it's like minimizing what women are capable of. It's like, Hey, you know, we can commit assault right. too, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. but it's like, I think also when it comes to just writing, it's what you said earlier about this pressure that women often feel women writers to be likable on the page. And so we don't right. see, I read a lot of books. I get a lot of books sent to me. What I was saying to Ivy was like, wow, you know, I just have not read uh, a lot of things where there are female characters who are perpetrating violence or doing evil shit on the page. And so it's nice. I think it's good yeah. to write about that stuff. And if they do, yeah. if you think about the paradigmatic example of like an evil woman, I mean, very often she'll only be evil in the domestic context. So like it will be evil because right. she's neglecting her kids or like whatever, cheating on her husband or something like that. But if you think about the paradigmatic evil woman, it's actually Lady Macbeth. Like, well, she's one of them. And she says, unsex me now before she goes to do the terrible thing, which is just this sign that she has to not be a woman in either in order to be evil. And then later she goes crazy. So this is another trope is that maybe women do bad things, but we psychologically, we're so pure and innocent and lovely at our core that we can't bear the burden of evil. And like, that's a really interesting trope too. Yeah. Well, I will look forward to it. And it's done? Yeah, it's done. I mean, I'm, I'm in the sort of endless ping pong with my editor where she sends me back, I send her back. She said, you know, all that. But I mean that's the, the book itself is done like the end is there and for me editing is much more comfortable than writing so i'm in a good i feel in good shape and it's going to be published yes you got a deal for it yes i do what's it called do we have a title i can't share that yet knowingly because i'm okay. excited about the title but soon i will all right all right uh well it's lovely to meet you and to talk with you i appreciate you making the time congratulations on berlin best of luck on the mysterious as yet well, I guess it's titled, but we haven't shared it yet. Whatever it is called, good luck with it. And I wish you well. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for having me on. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was B. Seton. Her debut novel, Berlin, is available now from Penguin Books. You can find her on the internet at bsetton.com. She is also on social media. Track her down on Twitter and Instagram. One more time, the novel is called Berlin. Go get your copy right away. Trust me. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? It is available free of charge, the entire archive. No paywall. No paywall by design. It is all there for you to listen to. More than 830 episodes and counting. So it's a listener-supported show. If you like the work that I do, if you had a good time, I hope you will tip your server. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale. You can get merchandise. I will write you a postcard. All of these things at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down. 
look for the t-shirt. If you would like to receive my free once a week email newsletter, you can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, I would really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. You can watch the podcast on the Other People YouTube channel. Search for the show by name, Other PPL. When you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have feedback for me, you can write to the show, letters at otherppl.com. And finally, if you would like to read my latest novel, it's out there. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So if you want to read my book, you can do that. Coming up next on the Other People podcast, I will be in conversation with Jim Ruland, who is returning to the program after several years to celebrate the publication of a new novel entitled Make It Stop, available from Rare Bird Books. I had a great time catching up with fellow Southern Californian. Fellow Southern Californian, that's how you say that, right? Jim Ruland, returning champion, coming up in just a couple of days. So stay tuned.